Okay, hi everyone. Uh, sorry it took me a few seconds to get ready, um, but welcome and excited for what we're going over today. Um, I have to say I was a little bit, I wasn't that happy with how the last lecture, it felt a little bit conceptual and I think it was hard to land some of the concepts. And so I hope that today having more of a concrete um, you know, basis to look at these issues, we can get a deeper understanding of some of these core problems that arise when Aboriginal and Indigenous law intersect with administrative law. Um, and so I wanted to give you first an idea of what my plan is for the next two classes. And I am going to spend, I expect all of today on the Trans Mountain Pipeline Slave Tooth case. There's so much in there. It does give you a good window into some of the opportunities, challenges, and limitations that First Nations um, face or grapple with when using administrative law to advance their um, interests you know, with big government decision-making processes. Um, but it also has a, there's non-Indigenous applicants who bring other administrative law issues to bear. And so it can also serve as a bit of a way to recap some of the important things we've learned through the course and to see them brought to bear on such a major project and such a absolutely monstrously huge administrative proceeding. So that will be today. And then on Wednesday, we will go over the question of judicial review of internal band governance and the supervisory role that the courts can play vis-a-vis -vis First Nations in their internal governance affairs. Um, and we will fold in a discussion of the federal court because of course both the Slaywood case and the, uh, the Blueberry River case that we have, that we're gonna look at on Wednesday, we read for today, will, uh, are in federal court and will give an opportunity to discuss the nature of that court and some of its opportunities and also limitations. And I will not assign any additional readings for Wednesday. I'll take the chapter on the federal court off the syllabus, uh, leaving only one more chapter of reading in the, in the entire course, actually, which is a, a really excellent chapter on access to justice and administrative law by now justice, then Professor Lauren Sawson. Um, so all in all, I, I, that's sort of how I plan to land the rest of the course. Um, and so today we will be looking at this National Energy Board process in some depth. And one of the nice things that I am going to draw upon is the oral arguments presented by the interveners. And I'll talk about who the interveners were, how this process worked. But those oral arguments are video recorded so we can have a look at how these arguments were presented, get a sense as to what the hearing room looked like, what a National Energy Board hearing on something of this magnitude um, you know, actually feels like when you're in the room, and how both First Nation and non-First Nation interveners presented some arguments. So we'll also get a chance to see some truly excellent advocacy. Um, we're gonna look at a lawyer, Tim Dixon, who did one of the best presentations I've ever seen in the context of this hearing and was almost entirely ignored, which um, 
it's maybe a lesson to be learned that the quality of advocacy and the results don't always go hand in hand. We'll also look at how Squamish Nation presented um, you know, their, their view to the, to the uh, National Energy Board. And we'll look at, um, maybe somewhat surprisingly, we'll look at how Elizabeth May uh, made representations. And of course, before being a politician, she was a lawyer. And she makes an excellent administrative law argument to the panel. So I want to look at those things interspersed throughout the lecture today, while also going in some depth into this process, both because it gives you a window into some of the higher stakes issues and um, processes that Aboriginal groups engage with through administrative law, and also because it'll give us a chance to look back on some of the key concepts we've talked about throughout the course of the year. Um, I am sorry at the length of the reading. I know that it, it was quite a bit for today, um, but hopefully as we go through it, you'll see there was some value in the parts that we talked about. And um, you know, it's frankly hard to decide what parts of that case to look at. There were other parts. When I was reviewing it last night, I said, oh, I almost wish that we had focused on this also. So I may touch on a few things that are not in the readings, but I hope the readings did um, serve you well in getting prepared to think about this process today. So I imagine most of you've heard about the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, very much a um, front page story for, for many years. And you probably are aware too that notwithstanding the outcome of this case, which was to set aside the approval, the pipeline is currently being constructed. And you know, and some opponents of the pipeline say um, very much a, a telling um, circumstance. Some of the pipeline route was actually just washed away with mudslides over the last week. Um, but what we have here is the National Energy Board's review of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. So what Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is ultimately at this time was owned by a, uh, an American company, Kinder Morgan, what they needed from the National Energy Board is called a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity. And this is a certificate that says it is in the public interest to build this pipeline and you can proceed through detailed regulatory processes, but those processes will be aimed at telling you how to build the pipeline, but not if. So this is the if stage. Should we make this pipeline at all? And for a while, for a long while, the National Energy Board had the role solely of ascertaining the need for the pipeline looking at um, you know, alternative methods of getting product to market, pipeline capacity, estimating future production, future need, which is a big project in and of itself. However, um, with the amendments to the environmental assessment regime that came about in 2012 through the um, during the Stephen Harper administration, there was a move to have the National Energy Board not only consider the need for this pipeline in sort of a 
economics and um, uh, you know, forward-looking industrial forecasting way, but also to conduct the environmental assessment for the project. So this role that had previously been done by other entities was now given to the National Energy Board. And the National Energy Board is in many ways more akin to a court than anything else. Uh, it has adjudicative functions. It's a decision maker largely, which also has a regulatory role that has an ongoing relationship with the pipeline proponents and operators. But the decisions of the National Energy Board are treated almost as equivalent to federal court decisions. And they're only reviewed in the Federal Court of Appeal. So this body that sort of generally functions more like a court hearing evidence, making decisions, was tasked now with also conducting an environmental assessment, which some criticized as um, you know, outside of their expertise in an unwise move. So in this process, the National Energy Board wears, in essence, three hats. The first being just this core, do we need this pipeline? What's the future forecast for, you know, the demand for this pipeline, et cetera, et cetera. The second being to conduct an environmental assessment pursuant to the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act 2012. And the third hat, to be the site to discharge much of the Crown's duty to consult. The idea being we're having this hearing, we're considering whether we need this pipeline, we're considering the environmental impacts of this pipeline, and we also want First Nations to come forward to this process and let us know what, if any, their concerns are with this pipeline on their rights and title. So it's a, a huge mandate that this National Energy Board is given in relation to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Ultimately, though, this is a strange wrinkle that you need to be clear on to understand this case. The National Energy Board, in this process we're going to look at, is not the decision maker. What they do is they write a report which gives recommendations to the governor and council. Governor and council, you remember, is of course cabinet. And they recommend whether this pipeline is in the public interest such that a certificate of public convenience and necessity could be issued. That's in relation to their first hat, their sort of energy regulator hat. They recommend whether or not the pipeline is likely to cause significant adverse environmental effects. That's under the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act. Have you taken environmental law, any of you? Some, not all, yeah. Um, so I'll just really briefly then be clear on how the environmental assessment process works. 
So they recommend whether or not the project is likely to cause significant adverse environmental effects. If so, it is then the governor and council's job to consider A, whether they accept that it's likely to cause these effects, and if so, then B, whether those effects can be justified in the circumstances. So then finally, the board hears and reports back to the governor and council on the indigenous concerns in relation to the project. But in relation to all three of those hats, the National Energy Board doesn't actually decide anything. They merely advise the governor and council on those three issues. The governor and council then decides whether it accepts what it wants to do, whether it does agree that the pipeline's in the public interest, whether it agrees that it will or will not cause environmental effects, and if so, whether they're justified, and assesses ultimately whether adequate consultation had occurred, such that the constitutional duty to consult has been discharged. Once the governor and council has made that decision, it, now this is a bit confusing, it then directs back to the National Energy Board to either issue or not issue this certificate of public convenience and necessity. So while the National Energy Board makes a recommendation as to whether to issue this certificate, and ultimately does in fact issue the certificate, the decision as to whether or not to issue the certificate rests with the governor and council. And this does become important, and this hopefully may help explain part of the decision that I expect you found a little bit confusing where they were talking about, you know, is the report a report? And I'll get to that issue in a second. But before I get into that, I want to be clear. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, just a very quick question. Yeah. So since it's just a report, could they theoretically make an argument on, um, in the report that absolutely not, this should be issued on all three grounds, and then could the minister still just say, don't issue it, totally disagree, um, and that still be reasonable? How much is he constrained? That's an excellent question, and the answer is absolutely yes, that can happen. It could also go the other way, that they could say yes, issue the certificate, and the minister says no, or the governor and council, so the totality of cabinet together. The reasonableness of that would require a consideration of the reasons, and there is an obligation on the governor and council to provide reasons that's set out in the statute, so the court would review that. Post Vavilov, it would be you know, even a heightened analysis of those reasons. And there's another wrinkle. There would be a procedural fairness obligation to advise the side that you were going to you know, not follow the advice in relation to, like if you're gonna not do the project to tell the proponent, if you're gonna do the project despite a recommendation not to, to tell the opponents, as to why you're not following the advice and to give a chance to give submissions and response. So this could be a procedural fairness obligation that could arise. 
but absolutely they are not obliged to follow the advice of this National Energy Board. However, the political cover that following the National Energy Board advice gives shouldn't be underestimated. There's a strong incentive on these politically vulnerable decision makers to at least have some removal from the decision themselves and to be able to say, hey, you know, we're just following the advice of this independent panel who looked at it very carefully. So to go against the, the panel is to step out on a limb politically significantly. But do they have the legal power to do so? Absolutely. But with that power would come the responsibility to both set out in the reasons why you've not agreed with the National Energy Board and to give the other side an opportunity in advance to respond to any new concerns that motivated your, your thinking. It was a great question though. It's a really key question. And it has happened. Uh, there is a mine on Vancouver Island where they um, changed their mind, didn't follow the advice of a, in a similar sort of recommendation process, and um, in fact got sued by the mining company saying that they had you know, expropriated a vested interest. Uh, it's a whole other issue. Um, you know, the, the incentives does remind me, one of the most upsetting things I ever saw was I was a clerk at the BC courts and I went down to Seattle on like a law clerk sort of exchange trip and um, I watched a guy get sentenced to death and it was just disgusting. Um, and the way that process works is the jury recommends whether or not to impose the death penalty, but the judge has the ultimate choice, but the judge follows the jury. So it's sort of like the firing squad idea where nobody really takes ultimate responsibility for it. And anyways, that's besides the point, but um, it was a very upsetting experience. But let's talk about the pipeline. Um, so get, I gave you the highest level understanding of what the National Energy Board's role is here. And let's talk a tiny bit about the project uh, at issue. So the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project is a project being constructed which twins an existing pipeline. So there is a Trans Mountain Pipeline that goes from Edmonton to Burnaby, to the Westridge Marine Terminal in Burnaby. Does anybody like, go to SFU or has been to, down to Westridge? Yeah, so it's, it's like right there. Um, right across from, if you're ever in you know, Port Moody, Belcara Park, it's like right there across the, across the inlet. So you get this Westridge Marine Terminal, um, tankers come in and out, load up with this, Dill bit, diluted bitumen. So it's, you know, you're hearing about potential gas shortages because of the mudslides, etc. Uh, well, you can't get gas out of the Trans Mountain pipeline. It's unrefined uh, diluted bitumen, which gets loaded up into tankers and gets shipped to be refined uh, either in the U.S. or quite often in Asia, in China. So the proposal is we are going to treble the capacity of this pipeline from like 300,000 barrels a day to like 900,000 barrels a day by constructing a twin, a pipeline that's gonna go right next to it. And they say, isn't this better than constructing a new pipeline because we're not disturbing undisturbed areas, we're not 
cutting new paths through the forest that can become you know, highways for wolves and disrupt migration patterns of undulates and we're not going to disturb new fish bearing streams, etc., etc., etc. So, you know, keep in mind this is an expansion. This is an expansion of capacity through a twinning of the existing infrastructure. Um, a small amount of it goes, it forks off around Abbotsford, and a small amount of it goes down directly into the U.S., but the vast majority of it ends up in Burnaby. Um, and so the, when you're thinking about this project, you want to think about the different components of it. So you have the, you know, the pipeline uh, takes product in Edmonton. And why is it taking product in Edmonton? Well, of course, it's because of the oil sands in Alberta. It ends up in Burnaby, where the, the um, dill bit, I'll call it, is, is stored then loaded up on these tankers. Um, and if you proceed with the project, of course, you're going to need many more tankers because you've got three times the amount of product. There's also a concern that you're going to have much more development in the oil sands because the increased capacity decreases the cost of getting that product to market and thereby will make a project economically viable that might not be viable if you had to pay to ship by rail. Then you have the pipeline itself. So one of the issues we're going to see, and I'm going to get to it in a minute or two, is, well, what's the scope of this project? Do we consider just the pipeline and you know any construction at Westridge? Do we consider the further oil sands mining that's expected to happen as a result? Do we consider the greenhouse gas emissions from that additional oil sands development? Do we consider the shipping that's going to happen on the other end? Do we consider the shipping and its potential impact on wildlife, orcas, etc.? And if so, how far do we cut it off? Do we consider um, you know, a potential accident in the middle of the Pacific on its way to China? Do we consider the greenhouse gas emissions not just from the mining of this uh, oil sands uh, diluted bitumen, but also from its being ultimately consumed? And if so, how do we do that? So you know, just to even get your head around, well, what even are we talking about? What's the scope of this project? as you can see, is a very convoluted question. And you can intuitively see how opponents to the project say, take into account the oil sands mining, take into account the greenhouse gas emissions from burning this fuel, um, take into account the orcas and the ships, take into account the totality of what's really at issue. And you can see how the Trans Mountain Pipeline says, hold on, that's getting well afield, we're building a pipeline, you can review individual oil sands projects on their own merits. You can regulate shipping under you know, your own jurisdiction to regulate shipping, which is not a National Energy Board concern. So you know, the stakes are sort of set here. But then overlaid across this is the traditional territories of numerous First Nations, not just at the you know, at the head, but throughout the entire pipeline route, you're cutting across Treaty 6, Treaty 8, and a whole lot of places where there's asserted Aboriginal rights and asserted Aboriginal title. 
the, the totality of the pipeline route is subject either to treaty rights or asserted Aboriginal rights or title. Some of them very strongly asserted, and, you know, I think of a nature that ought to really be taken as proven. So if you ever want to sort of take on the highest degree of difficulty in an administrative process, taking on getting this pipeline through the National Energy Board process and the duty to consult, you know, this is the highest degree of difficulty. It doesn't get more tricky than this for an administrative lawyer. On the flip side, if you're an opponent of this project, um, you know, tremendously difficult project to get your head around and to understand the potential weaknesses and to understand um, you know, how best to explain to this regulator your client's interests and why this project ought not to be built. So stakes are very high. The complexity is just off the charts, uh, as complex as this can possibly get. So that takes me to the panel process itself. Um, you have the National Energy Board being granted significant discretion in its statute as to the process it's going to follow in this type of a hearing. One thing that is contemplated, though, is intervener status being granted to groups or individuals with an interest in this project. The National Energy Board granted intervener status to 400 groups or individuals. 400 groups or individuals were thereby allowed to issue requests from the proponent for information to file motions, including motions to compel responses or better responses to their information requests, to file written evidence, to comment on proposed conditions of approval. If we're going to do it, it'll be subject to these conditions. You can comment on those as an intervener. And you can present written and oral summary argument. So if you've ever done a court case where you're the plaintiff and there's multiple defendants, you know that every new defendant adds a level of complexity. You know, in the Site C case I work on, we've got three defendants, and it makes it very hard to even coordinate simple procedural things. Well, imagine you're trying to navigate this insanely complex regulatory regime, and you've got effectively 400 defendants. It, you know, I. I had the, I used to do a seminar on this, um, this topic of this Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, and I was lucky enough to have counsel for Trans Mountain actually come and talk to the seminar about the process that he went through, and just to even, even showed like the kind of the decision mapping that they set out, and it was like 15 PowerPoint slides of different things going different ways, different considerations and interests, just a staggering amount of work. Um, so you have 400 interveners with these powers, then on top of that, some of these interveners are indigenous groups who are asserting indigenous rights. And they have the, um, the choice, if they uh, would like, 
to give oral evidence, um, to give traditional knowledge through oral evidence, you know, in a manner consistent with an oral tradition. If they do give oral evidence, they are subject to questioning by the proponent on that evidence. So, as you might imagine, in something of this insane magnitude, there's a number of decisions along the way that set the course that the hearing is going to take. And one of the key early decisions that was made was the decision that we're not going to let these interveners cross-examine Trans Mountain's witnesses. In fact, we're not going to have anybody cross-examine Trans Mountain's witnesses at all. And we're going to see Elizabeth May talk about that very issue a little bit later, so I won't say too much more about it now. There was also decisions made at the outset on that question I alluded to as to what's the scope of the project. What's the scope of the project um, in the sense of do we include the marine shipping? Do we include the what they call upstream development, the development that happens as a result of the increased capacity to get this to market, the more oil sands production? And do we consider the greenhouse gas emissions of upstream and downstream development? And in basically a string of early victories for the proponent, the, the, the National Energy Board decided we are not going to consider marine shipping, at least insofar as we are discharging our role under the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act. We are not going to decide whether the marine shipping will cause significant adverse environmental effects as defined in that act. We're not going to deal with the consequent obligations under the Species at Risk Act that would follow such a determination because we are the National Energy Board and we don't have jurisdiction over marine shipping. We're, we just have jurisdiction over pipelines. I'm going to come back to that in a second, just to tie off the knot on the other jurisdictional scoping issues. They also decided we're not going to consider upstream development, additional oil sands production, and we're not going to consider downstream greenhouse gas emissions. We're not going to consider upstream development because we decide that there is uh, this, this pipeline's construction doesn't depend on any particular new oil sands being developed. Uh, they're doing it irrespective of any further development. Which is a huge decision that really changes the scope. But they say, if you have a problem with the upstream development, you know, there will be assessments of every individual oil sands project and you can deal with that. We also won't determine the downstream effects of burning this um, on the greenhouse gas emissions for a variety of reasons, but including the idea that this isn't expected to increase global fossil fuel demand. It's just going to be you know, met by Canada as opposed to another nation. And so therefore, there won't really be a marginal increase in greenhouse gas emissions on the downstream end, is what they're thinking. Um, all these issues are fascinating. We get into these when I do that seminar for you know for classes on, on each of these issues. Um, 
So coming back though to the marine shipping issue. So if you remember, they said we're not considering it for the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act purposes. They said, but when we're thinking big picture, if it's in the public interest to have this pipeline, we are going to think about marine shipping. We are going to, um, you know, consider it in our report. And you know, interestingly enough, if you go to their their report, now what happens? I didn't lost it. I'll get it on the break. Um, if you go to their report, they in fact have a whole chapter about marine shipping. But we'll get to how the court dealt with marine shipping. We get the substance of the review. But I want to briefly point out something that happened procedurally on this scoping issue about marine shipping, which is that there was a judicial review, uh, or sorry, I'll take one more step back. In order to uh, challenge a decision of the National Energy Board by way of judicial review, you need to seek leave from the Federal Court of Appeal to bring a challenge. So, Slaywood said, it's crazy to scope out marine shipping from the Canadian Environmental Assessment Review. So they were prompt, they filed a judicial review, an application for leave for judicial review. They were granted leave to bring a, a judicial review of the preliminary scoping decision. But then when the Federal Court of Appeal heard the judicial review, they said, you know what? We're not going to interfere now. We don't want to interfere with an ongoing regulatory process. We want to see how this whole thing plays out. So we're not going to decide the scoping issue now, but you are free to challenge the decision later, i.e. after the uh, process has completed. Um, we'll see you know, the problem with that approach a little bit later. I want to just flag that that happened. So you have these decision or the sort of scoping exercise that's been completed. You have an interim judicial review that was uh, brought forward, but ultimately not allowed because it was deemed to be in essence premature. And so then you get into the panel process itself. And so you have this review panel, which is composed of three members of the National Energy Board um, two of them have expertise and background in governance. The fellow you see on the um, screen there is the chair of the panel, and he was a deputy minister and clerk for the Northwest Territories government, and he had extensive uh, experience negotiating with First Nations. Um, another individual comes from a law background. Actually, she was an administrative law lawyer. And another individual has an industry background, was acquiring and constructing major infrastructure projects. So that's who the panel is. No members um, are indigenous themselves. And so I wanted to sort of get into the panel review process a bit uh, and show you a video of how the Squamish participated, the Squamish nation participated. But just to sort of set the stage for this video, what you have in the, um, this entire process is gigantic volumes of material are filed with the National Energy Board, staggering amounts of material. And we'll hear a submission on that later today. There's then this information request process where the interveners say, hey, 
be more clear on this. Trans Mountain gives a response. Another interviewer says, that wasn't clear enough. Trans Mountain gives another response. Back and forth, hundreds and hundreds of these information requests. Just an insanely time-consuming process for all sides. Then with all this material finally into evidence, all of these reports, you have this argument stage, not an evidence stage. There's a little bit of indigenous oral evidence, but generally speaking, this is just week upon week of submissions, of interveners making 40-minute long oral submissions. Not all 400 made uh, separate submissions. Some teamed up, some chose not to make submissions orally at all but numerous, numerous interveners made submissions and they traveled to Calgary, to Burnaby, different places to hear these arguments. So what we're gonna see here is a little bit of the uh, oral submissions that were made in Burnaby um, at that casino that you see on sort of the south side of, of the highway when you're driving up, you know, driving east. And, um, and we're going to see first uh, how Squamish Nation um, you know, presented their, their nation's interests uh, briefly. I won't watch the whole thing, it's quite long. But I think it's a, there's, a, there's something powerful in the way this goes. Let's see if I can make it make noise. All right, let's take a break, actually. Um, I'll figure this out and we'll... We'll get back in a second. Chow Chow Sway, Tihai Spotum, 
die zum just want to say good morning. Thank you very much to my uh, legal counsel for their presentations today. Just welcoming you to the shared territories of our Squamish, Muslim, and Tzalewatol. Asking the Creator to bring light upon our lands and our waters, the spirit that sustains us all, all life on earth. Really thinking of the teachings of our old timers, the good advice that's been handed down to us from our ancestors of our responsibilities towards stewardship of our lands and resources, that this is unceded territories of the Squamish, Muslim, and Tzalewatol. And I ask you to have that open mind, that good feeling in your heart as we begin our day. See the chapayach, the cedar boughs next to you are an important medicine to our people to have that purity of thought and heart. So thanking all the witnesses that are here for their good work as well in finding solutions to this very complex matter. Um, we do have one, one matter we'd like to, uh, to bring out before we, we get started today. Um, and I mean this with all due respect. Uh, the Squamish Nation is very disappointed to not have had the opportunity to have its Chiefs and Council and community members attend the session today. This is a historic event for the Squamish Nation. This is supposed to be a public process. Squamish people need to witness this work today. It's part of our culture. It's part of who we are. So we're very disappointed to not have this protocol respected, but we do welcome the opportunity to make our presentations today. Uh, so our, our roadmap today. So obviously it goes on in a really interesting way. Um, and part of me would like to just show these videos all day. And I think you probably get a lot out of it. You can find these online. We'll look at a few more in a few minutes. Um, but what I wanted to, uh, to draw out of that introduction is you see the procedural tension right off the bat between uh, indigenous law and this process. And you see an attempt by Chief Campbell to, um, you know, to bring an indigenous procedural order, starting with a prayer and calling to mind the law of Squamish Nation. You know, he's talking about the good wisdom and teachings of, uh, you know, of their forefathers. That's not, uh, you know, the elders, that's not, that's not just flowery words, that's law. That, that's talking about the Squamish law that he's hoping is brought into the consideration of the hearing. Then you see you know, Mr. Bruce getting up there and saying, well, part of our protocol, part of our law, our procedural law, is that this sort of a decision should be made for our community. But not only are our members not allowed, but not even is the council allowed to be in the room today. And you look at the empty chairs, it's almost a mockery that there, it's not that there wasn't room. 
It was a course that they didn't want it to be too raucous. They only wanted people who were going to be presenting to be up there. Um, and so, you know, you think about open court principles, that idea usually resonates within the Western legal order as well. But it was seen as a, you know, a protocol violation immediately in the procedure that's chosen for this hearing. And it, it starts to, I think, be a stark reminder right at the beginning of, at times, the irreconcilability of some of these administrative processes and indigenous law, or maybe irreconcilability is the wrong word, but unwillingness to take seriously an attempt to reconcile those two procedures, um, you know, I think very much is a criticism the panel needs to be aware of. So the Squamish nation goes on to describe numerous concerns with the consultation and with the project itself. And indeed, you see throughout these hearings, just intervener after intervener, tackling either problems with the science, problems with the economics, or asserting indigenous or Aboriginal rights and title issues that are going to be infringed or violated through this project. Have these lengthy hearings. You have a, a, a polite board that seems to you know, sit and listen. Sorry, my phone is just blowing up because my daughter's got my wife's phone. And she is sending me emoji after emoji. <laughs> um, I'm gonna turn that on. Do not disturb. Um, so then, you know, you get this lengthy proceeding, and then ultimately, a few months, not very long later, you know, this this happens in January 2016. In May of 2016, you get the report from the National Energy Board setting out its recommendations. Of course, its recommendation is that the pipeline is in the public interest and that it will not cause significant adverse environmental effects at all. Um, the report is extremely lengthy, detailed, goes through various submissions and sets out the views of the board and recommendations and mitigation measures that might be adopted. This goes to the governor and council and they relatively quickly accept the recommendation and issue the certificate of public convenience and necessity. That launches the judicial review process. Numerous um, parties, before, interveners, seek leave to judicially review this decision. That includes two municipalities, Vancouver, Burnaby, um, four groups of First Nations, representing more than just four individual First Nations, and a public interest organization. Um, so within this process, the federal court then grants leave to have the judicial review heard. Here's the judicial review and sets out its own, you know, many hundreds of pages long decision, which you've had a look at. And you'll see one of the first issues that the court grapples with is something I alluded to earlier, is the recommendation itself reviewable 
or is only the governing council decision reviewable? And you'll remember I said that the recommendation in and of itself doesn't affect anyone's legal rights. It's just a recommendation. And in relation to the Northern Gateway pipeline process, there had previously been a decision of the Federal Court of Appeal saying, well, then the recommendation itself is not reviewable. Only the governor and council decision is reviewable. Then here's the big but. But the governor and council decision can only be defensible, can only be reasonable, if it is based upon a proper report. And if there is something that would justify setting aside the report in a judicial review, then it wasn't a proper report, and that echoes into the governor and council decision, which will then itself be unreasonable. So it's a bit of a procedural sort of jujitsu. They're saying, don't look at the review in the report, review the governor and council decision, but within that review, you're allowed to challenge the adequacy of the report and the entire process that led up to the report. And if it's inadequate, then the governor and council, despite the fact that it's holding this you know, long 500-page document, doesn't even have a report at all. Strange, convoluted thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, we'll get into that because they do talk directly about adequacy of reasons as a judicial review point. Um, there is an element to that, but you're not, it's sort of shorthand to say it's not a proper report. They're saying it's not a proper process that went into that report as well. And so it's, um, it's not just the reasons, it's also the procedure and substance that can lead to a finding that this is not a report. I know this is convoluted and unsatisfying, and sort of shockingly, one very well-funded litigant, um, who we are you know, within their jurisdiction right now, Vancouver, uh, decided to not even challenge the governor and council report only seek to challenge the panel report, like not to seek to challenge the governor and council decision at all, only seek to challenge the report and kind of take another run at this very recent Federal Court of Appeal decision saying that you're not allowed to challenge the uh, report, you have to challenge the governor and council decision. And I think not surprisingly, the Federal Court of Appeal was like, what are you doing? We just told you how to do this like a year ago. And so you didn't even ask to challenge the governor and council decision. We are not going to revisit and reconsider that decision. So Vancouver, we are not listening to you. So they got entirely ignored on the substance. What was it? I'll say it to the microphone. That was an idiotic decision by their council. Like their lawyer shouldn't have gotten, shouldn't have gotten paid. Hunter litigation is a good firm, but they shouldn't have gotten paid for that. Because you don't take that risk for your client. You know, you don't stand up and say we should proceed to be able to do it this way when the court said do it this way. Just get to the substance, obviously. So, um, enough of that. <laughs> Sorry to all my friends at Hunter Legation. Um, all right, so getting into the stuff that we actually reviewed and we, we care about a lot for this class. Uh, standard of review, you see it's relatively brief analysis. Um, of course, this is pre-Vavilov, but 
uh, the conclusion ultimately that this decision would be reviewed under reasonableness standard generally would certainly be the case following Babylon. Also, what is important coming out of the standard of review though is the nuance in how to address issues of the duty to consult within the process, within this, this uh, administrative process. And the court says, when you are dealing with the existence and extent of the duty to consult, this is a constitutional question. Is there a duty to consult? And if so, to what extent does that duty extend? Those are constitutional questions which need to be reviewed on a correctness standard. And that is still the law post of Avalov also. However, the adequacy of the consultation, they say, is a question of mixed fact and law reviewed under a reasonableness standard. So if you're trying to understand the scope of the project that is given to the government, do you have to consult, and if so, on what? In relation to what? With whom? That's all correctness. Government has to get that right. But if you want to say, did they discharge the duty to consult? Did they adequately hear and understand and respond to First Nation concerns? That's just a reasonableness question. That's going to get a measure of deference. This is a controversial thing. The duty to consult is, of course, a constitutional right. And to me, this raises many of the same questions and problems as you see in the Charter Values Framework. When we're talking about constitutional rights, you know, really what room for deference is there? And could a decision that did not adequately consult, if you, can, if you conclude that as the court, I wouldn't have said this is adequate consultation. How is there room for deference on that point? Isn't that akin to you know, the, what the court has said about charter violations, that if you find that a charter rights were violated, you know, it almost per se is unreasonable. So I think this is another area that's going to need to be thought through more completely. How do you deal with the standard of review when assessing the adequacy of consultation? In essence, the nations lose twice because on the standard of review, they say, okay, we're going to defer to how the government discharged and viewed its duty to consult. But even within the substantive requirements of consultation, there's ideas of the standard is not perfection. There's a range of possible ways to accomplish this. So you, in essence, get a, a right that incorporates um, a standard of less than perfection and admitting some sort of uh, discretion within how it's going to be discharged. So the substance of the duty to consult has that. And then when you review it, the courts add on another layer of deference. We're going to review this on a reasonableness standard. Did you reasonably apply this already not perfect and somewhat deferential standard? Um, you know, the nations do seem to lose twice on that formulation. So certain, again, I'm being a bit soapboxy in the second half of the class today, but that one is one I think we're going to see some reconsideration of. And I think the reconsideration of the charter values framework that you see in Trinity Western very well may be the springboard to reconsider this as well.
So then you get into the review of the report itself. And you see um, a, a split between procedural fairness concerns on the one hand and substantive concerns on the other. And the procedural fairness concerns, again, resonate in the idea that if there was an unfair process that led to this report, this report is not a report that can be relied upon. Strained, but you know that's the law. So within the decision, you'll see you know, your old friend, the Baker factors, come out. One thing that's interesting, I think, about this is you see the Baker factors actually relied upon twice in the analysis of the Federal Court of Appeal. So they do a sort of overarching, generic Baker factors analysis at paragraph 235, where they say, in essence, that you know, this is a very important decision, and we're going to go ahead and say that's the predominant factor that's going to lead to a high duty of procedural fairness. But then when they go through the individual allegations of procedural fairness, and specifically the allegation that there needed to be oral cross-examination, we see them again revisit the Baker factors and, um, and, and apply those individually to the question of whether it ought to have been oral cross-examination. Um, and before I talk about that, I do want to show you a clip from the Elizabeth May presentation, which I think does a good job of landing the importance of this procedural right to oral cross-examination and what might have been lost by it being not granted to the interveners, or at least to some interveners, because it would have been possible, perhaps, to strike a middle ground where you're not giving 400 interveners oral cross-examination, but you may be giving some interveners a right of oral cross-examination. So I'm just going to go to the 127 mark. Here she's talking about giving the National Energy Board the environmental assessment responsibility. It was a decision made by uh, a parliament uh, that pushed it through under the previous prime minister. But as a result of those changes, there were timelines associated with this hearing. And those timelines were used as the excuse to drive quite a few changes in terms of procedural rights for interveners. This has raised many issues throughout this hearing of procedural fairness. And I think those arguments are serious. Procedural fairness was not observed in denying oral cross-examination, for example. But in this final argument, what I want to try to do is, in a cross-cutting way, look at the issue of the lack of oral cross-examination, not just as a matter of an effect to the rights of people like me as interveners, but to the quality of the evidence you have before you as decision-makers. Because the essence of cross-examination is not just an aspect of fairness to participants. It is for the adjudicators of facts an essential way that evidence is tested and facts can be determined. And I submit to you that there is a significant frailty to the evidence that would not be in place 
have cross-examination occurred. So I want to go through some of those issues with you. And I will use it, as I said, in a cross-cutting way. Now, let me explain what I did as an intervener um, in approaching Trans Mountain's application. I can't really, it must be an age thing or a generational thing, I can't cope with things that are just on the internet or that I can access electronically. So I printed it out, took it to the local print shop, it came to 23,000 pages, and then I sorted it. I actually dealt with it physically. I went through and removed all the duplicative bits, all the repetitive descriptions of the project, all of the PowerPoint presentations that were identical, but for the name of the, of the town where it was presented and the date, I took out all the repetitive, non-important, irrelevant material. That set aside several thousand pages. I went back and then sorted through the very useful description of the area as it now is, our healthy environment as it exists, and of course recognizing as the Squamish Nation just pointed out, Clan beds have been lost, it's not entirely a pristine environment, but there's a good description, and there's a description of the economic benefits of the various sectors that are at risk here. I set that aside, and I read everything else. Now, my conclusion is that Trans Mountain set out to make their application unnecessarily long with the intention of intimidating people from actually approaching it and doing what I did. Very few people will have read every section in the various parts of the application, and when Trans Mountain claims that they've been rigorous or that their, their eight volumes somehow connote some level of diligence, I, I submit to you that it was entirely aimed at discouraging public engagement. It's in reading the document in its entirety that it becomes clear that Trans Mountain applied for instance very different approaches to some risks than to others. In the absence of cross-examination, I wasn't able to put this to them, but I would submit to you in final argument that repeatedly, Trans Mountain re rejects certain scenarios as low probability, low likelihood, and particularly plausible worst case scenarios, such as those put forward in the excellent analyses from the city of Vancouver, from Burnaby, from groups like Living Oceans, from the Tsleil-Waututh First Nation. Uh, they set those aside, and, and you can find a reference to their dismissal of those in page 331 of their final argument. A uh, similar comment in response to my information requests at page 15 of my second IR, and Trans Mountain responded, an oil spill from a project-related tanker is a low likelihood occurrence. You, these are repetitive. Through, they, they say a, a tank farm fire, again, low likelihood occurrence. On the other hand, some very low probability events, I'd say on the order of vanishingly small to nil, get a lot of attention. Uh, highly fanciful low probability events are described in detail in the Agriculture Assessment Technical Report, Volume A, 3, S, 2, K, 9, pages 7 and 12. Uh, is the uh, discussion of the risk of pipeline construction increasing avian flu. They put forward the uh, hypothetical risk that a construction worker will blunder into a poultry barn and through uh, viral material on their boots contaminate poultry. This is, I can't find any record of this ever happening in real life. Unlike a lot of low probability events such as pipeline breaks, 
and tanker leaks that do happen in their life. But they, they'll put attention to this and they're going to make sure their construction workers wear booties and uh, have foot baths available to avoid contaminating the poultry barns. So I, do you think anyone here think there's any chance of a construction worker deciding to blunder into a poultry barn? Okay, another one is the threat to milk production in that same volume, A3S2K9, at page two to seven, where they, and I quote, uh, Kinder Morgan has determined, quote, milk cows are very curious, <laughs> And they then conclude that there's a risk to milk production because the curious milk cows will become fascinated by the pipeline construction and it might diminish production. I, well, if there had been cross-examination, I would have liked to put to them, why are these fanciful low probability events treated as credible by you, but a worst case scenario of an accident in Vancouver is not credible. The role of cross-examination is more than procedural fairness. It is about testing the quality of the evidence. And any book on evidence will tell you that it's particularly essential when issues of credibility are at stake, but it's also generally of assistance in weighing competing expert reports. In a normal NEB hearing, I would have been here with experts able to cross-examine experts and ask questions that went to the heart of whether they knew what they were doing when they did certain studies. Now, the novel approach taken in this hearing, and this is unprecedented uh, to have no access to cross-examination, but it's not just a question of whether interveners got oral cross-examination or written. That isn't the issue. And it hit me the other day when I was preparing this argument. We never got to question the witnesses at all. We were able to ask questions in writing of Kinder Morgan, and I suspect their legal counsel prepared the answers. We never got to ask any questions at all of the witnesses who prepared the evidence on which this application is based. And then, similarly, None of our expert witnesses who prepared reports, and I speak of our and a collectivity of interveners, were subjected to cross-examination. So it's, 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 a, it's a, a really huge level of disconnect here between those who presented the evidence as experts and those who intervened to try to get to the truth of the matter. And what it does is it fundamentally undermines the reliability of the evidence that you must rely on in coming to your decision. All right. She's pretty good, right? Like as a lawyer, she's very good. Um, but I think that her presentation is powerful in the way it lands a procedural fairness concern in much more concrete terms. And she goes on, and I, I wish again that we could continue to watch, but she, she gets very detailed and says, you know, I read this expert report and there is this frailty in the method, which is even recognized in the report. And they said that they ought to maybe try this again, but it's the only time it was ever tried. And I would like to be able to explore that with the expert. So she gets into highly specific and you know, very troubling aspects of the expert evidence that she would like to have cross-examined. And then also the example with the poultry farm, you know, I think it's a fascinating reminder that sometimes you can uh, get a bit meta in your cross-examination and say, why are you, you know, making us look over here when the real problem is here? You know, I try to get a, a fundamental strategy that she's trying to undercut. And then, you know, her, her point too that this substitute of let's give information requests 
is problematic in and of itself, but especially so because these go not to the individual that has the expertise, but to the legal team. And have any of you, like as a summer student, worked on like interrogatories or follow-ups to an examination for discovery? This often happens where you'll have questions that are left with the legal team, and you fuss over those things forever until they say nothing, is basically what ends up happening. So that was her point, is that's really all we're getting. And I like watching this video and then comparing it with the treatment of the lack of cross-examination in the reasons of the federal court because you get, in essence, a pretty routine reapplication of the Baker factors leading to a conclusion that there was you know, adequate opportunity to test the evidence and to make your position known. And so therefore, it wasn't a violation of procedural fairness not to allow oral cross-examination. But did any of you really get the power of this submission in that part of the judgment? Like, it's not there, I don't think. It, it seems rather dry. Um, but she lands it in a way that I think makes the procedural fairness feel sort of more visceral and you know, remarkable. Um, and then I think it should make you read the rejection of the challenge to oral cross-examination as a procedurally necessitated right, um, you know, with a little more careful eye and to ask whether you really are satisfied that this is, um, that this was an appropriate procedure. And fundamentally what the court did, again, is they reapplied the Baker factors and they said, well, this is not really a judicial decision because this is an advisory opinion. Um, this is meant to be dealt with quickly. There's timelines in the statute. So the statute seems to contemplate this being done quickly. Um, there isn't a direct appeal right. It's judicial review only. Uh, the, this is an important decision, uh, but there is no legitimate expectation that was created of a right to cross-examination. So no cross-examination. And I think it can illustrate, while the Baker factors have been remarkably resilient, um, at times they sort of lead to this analysis, which is, here's the, the you know, input, here's the outcome, but what sort of happened in between? And how did you really grapple with what was lost in this particular procedural right not being provided? Um, and the court sort of doesn't. And it's sort of is a we've considered the factors, we've weighed our you know weighed them in a balance, and we've come to this conclusion. So I hope that this sort of um, causes you to recognize what has been a criticism of this Baker approach, in that you you, know, you have these five factors, you weigh them, but there's not really a good way to understand how you ought to weigh them and how you ought to tie those factors to any particular procedural right claimed. Um, I'm just going to pause. Any questions or comments? Yeah. Yeah, just a quick question. So talking about procedural fairness, if the National Energy Board had tried to do a compromise and said, okay, you know, you, 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 interveners, you can 
do cross examinations, but the rest of you can't. Yeah. Um, for the sake of timelines. Yeah. Could the rest not make a procedural Absolutely. argument? And Absolutely. Absolutely. Not be a very strong procedural argument. Saying, you know, why did you? Why did you get it? Not me? this. Yes, and that's a great point. And yeah, so I'm being. It's easy to be harsh as to what happened. It's more difficult to be constructive as to what a better way forward is. And you're absolutely right that the look, 400 people cross-examining everybody doesn't work. I think we can all probably just stipulate that. Um, so is this middle ground solution perfect? You know, certainly not. Um, so great point. Let's, let's, let's all sort of keep that in our minds. Um, and and you know have some sympathy for the panel. Uh, at the same time, you know we don't want to lose what was lost here, or forget what was lost here in the cross examination. Yeah. Quick question here. Yeah. Uh, so analyzing the data spectrum here, the court makes all the references to the ADB report to the specific paragraphs. So I was wondering if in the outset they already decided that the board is not an adjudication body; it's just an advisory. So what's the code doing actually here? Because they have completely forgotten the elephant in the room. They have not made any reference to the governor and council. Yeah. Well, again, it's it's this weird jujitsu where you're looking at whether the report is a report as a sort of preliminary question. And part of the reason for that is there's a whole lot of law that says governor and council decisions, cabinet decisions, get a minimal amount of procedural so if you want to challenge the governor and council decision itself, their actual decision-making process, you've got almost no inroads to do so. So the court has this inroad of saying, challenge the report, say it's not a report, not at least a proper report that can be relied upon, and in so doing, you can challenge the fairness. So it, it, again, it's this, this um, way they get around uh, this, you know, concern about whether the report itself is justiciable leads to this confusion, I think, in the analysis that you're highlighting. But ultimately, it seems to be um, something that didn't cause any substantive difference in the nature of the analysis. So it's not satisfying, but it's, it's kind of is what it is. Any other questions on the comments at this point? All right. Um, so, Staying on the cross-examination briefly, you also see Stolo First Nation said, hold on a second, if we present oral uh, history, oral traditional knowledge, we are cross-examined, and yet nobody from Trans Mountain is ever going to be cross-examined, that's fundamentally unfair. And the court dealt with this, I think, in a surprisingly off-handed way, and I think a way they might not do today because there's more consideration of sort of respect for indigenous law and process. But they say, well, you had the choice to answer any question in writing, so that's a complete answer to any suggestion there's no fairness here. But if you have an oral tradition, to say you had a choice to abandon that oral tradition seems sort of not satisfying to me. Uh, it was a minor point, but again, getting back to that theme of fitting indigenous law and indigenous uh, procedure within an administrative process can be quite an uneasy process itself. Um, so the court concludes there was no 
procedural fairness right to oral cross-examination, that this process was okay. They then go into specifics about the information requests that were made and whether there were adequate answers to those information requests. And they in essence say, look, you had a right to make these requests, you had a right to get an answer, but you didn't have a right to get an answer that ultimately satisfied you. And so we'll, we'll review whether there was you know, adequate answers given, but we're not gonna hold up a standard of, you, know, you needed to say, okay, no more questions. Um, and so you know, they, they found again that this didn't violate procedural fairness, the way the information requests were dealt with. I move a little bit quickly because there's a bit that I want to get through. Um, and I especially want to get into the question of Burnaby raised an absolutely key issue that actually they, they tried to raise two different ways, both in the procedural fairness arguments and in the substantive arguments that they raised. And the question that they asked the court about was, look, we are a municipality who has the responsibility of dealing with anything local on the ground that happens at the West Ridge Marine Terminal. And one of the scariest things about the Trans Mountain Pipeline on a local level is the Burnaby Fire Department has said, we can't put out a fire there. Like, we don't have the capacity to extinguish if you expand the capacity as you planned and there is a major tanker fire. Not something we can do. Um, there's other local issues as well about the safety of the pipeline at its terminus. And Burnaby raised these with the panel and they, in essence, said, these are the types of things that we can deal with going forward in the regulatory phase of this undertaking that's going to continue to be under National Energy Board jurisdiction for the life of its existence, although that was the Canada Energy Regulator, but one or another body is going to have oversight on this and will continue to be able to deal with that. And so Burnaby tried to say this was a procedural fairness issue, that they raised an issue and they have a procedural right to an answer and to a consideration and a weighing of the evidence by the tribunal that you know, they say was tasked with this. And the court says in essence, no. They were entitled to not decide these issues but to push them forward to consideration later in the administrative process, the overall administrative process in relation to this pipeline. And they, in essence, say the same thing when later in the decision you see them revisiting these questions in the context of review of the substance of the decision. Was it unfair to not consider these issues? And then was it unreasonable to not consider these issues? And they say, in essence, no and no. And what I want you to take away from this, and this is something that's sort of more environmental law-y, but it does resonate in administrative law in these types of processes is there is a struggle between two concepts, um, a real push and pull between proponents and opponents of major projects. And the two concepts are the precautionary principle and adaptive management. Have you heard of those ideas before? Environmental law stuff, yeah. 
So ultimately, the precautionary principle is the idea that don't use uncertainty as a reason to go ahead with something. If you don't know if something's going to happen or not, you can't say, well, we're not sure. You haven't, you haven't proven it will go wrong, so let's proceed. Rather, in the face of uncertainty, exercise caution. You could see how opponents of major projects often rely on the precautionary principle. We just don't know what's going to happen to this watershed with these tankers. We need more study. We need to understand how this is going to interface with local fish bearing populations. We need to understand the impacts on caribou migration and this expansion. You know, we, this is the type of arguments you make in a precautionary principle framework. Adaptive management is what the proponent says in relation to those arguments. They say, don't worry. We will change what we're doing if a problem arises. We will adapt and manage the problem. And so what Burnaby was raising really came down to a classic precautionary principle versus adaptive management dilemma. Should we not allow this to proceed because we don't know the answer to how we're going to deal with the fires? Or should we let it go forward on the understanding that we're going to figure out a solution to this problem as it you know, as this, um, as this progresses. So, you know, I wanted to highlight that just because that's a tension that you're going to see quite often when you look at administrative law review of major projects, and these tend to be, if you're going to be an administrative lawyer, you'll eventually get involved in these types of projects, and you want to, you want to have that in your mind. Um, Burnaby also raises an argument that there were inadequate reasons provided. Um, so that was a, a question here. Now, you know, you, you do look at the length of that panel review, uh, panel report, and you're facing an uphill battle. Because this is another review, I want you to remember that adequacy of reasons as a procedural right was established in Baker but it doesn't get to the sufficiency of the reasons, just to the existence of reasons at all. And so the court, I think, very easily sort of discards the assertion that there weren't reasons here that would violate, in a way that would violate procedural fairness. Um, they also consider an argument on procedural fairness that there had been improper reply evidence adduced. And, this is a, another argument to keep in the back of your mind to be a good administrative lawyer, especially when you're having a sort of, I make my case, you respond, I reply. One of the things you have to be cognizant of is you know, splitting your case. You're familiar with that concept? The idea that you, you raise new issues in reply, and you do so in a way that doesn't allow the other side to even respond to them. And so when you're making a reply, if you raise new issues, the other side says, hold on, I need what's called a sir reply. I get a chance to have last word. And so Burnaby said, indeed, you know, Trans Mountain and your reply evidence, you raise new issues, new arguments. The board says no. So you have this litany of procedural objections to this very complex decision-making process, and the federal court just strikes them down one by one by one by one and ultimately says we are not going to overturn you know, this governor and council decision on the basis that the procedure was unfair. 
Now there still are two more topics for the opponents of the project to push. One being the substantive uh, review of the project and the other being the adequacy of the consultation at, by the government as a whole. And so that's what we're gonna turn it turn to next. Um, but what I wanna do, I think, is show you one last video um, because this ties in, I think, process and substance and the challenges faced by First Nations into a nice package and it's in the context of you know, truly excellent submissions by, uh, by Tim Dixon of JFK Law. Um, and so what Tim Dixon is dealing with here is a problem that harkens back to the first thing we talked about in our segment on Aboriginal and administrative law, which is the difficulty of judicially reviewing funding and what does the government make available in terms of resources to First Nations. Here it's in the context of the funding that is provided to Kwantlen First Nation in order to participate in the National Energy Board process. And I mean, if you want to see good advocacy, this is about as good as it gets. So let's watch this and we'll have a chat about it. Return to the basic point. You are statutorily obliged to make your recommendation to the Crown as to whether this project should be approved. And you are constitutionally obliged to respect Section 35. If this process cannot discharge the Crown's duty to consult, then you need to say that. Dramatic pause. And you must not recommend approval without that duty being discharged. Now, it may be that the Crown will believe that its subsequent process can discharge it. But, it. but if this process cannot do it, then your recommendation has to be that, that the project not be approved until the duty to consult is discharged. You cannot recommend that the Crown approve the project unless doing so would comply with the honor of the Crown as well as fulfill all the other statutory requirements. So let me turn, if I can, to, to the deficiencies in this process um, that we, that we um, submit to you. Uh, rendered this process um, unable to discharge the need to consult. And of course you're aware that interveners uh, have objected on many grounds to this process and we share those objections. But the one I wish to focus on is the lack of capacity funding to enable Kwantlen's meaningful participation. And I want to be very upfront about the funding that Kwantlen has received uh, like most First Nations, I believe, uh, Kwantlen received some money from Kinder Morgan to do its TLU report, and that's, um, as I identified earlier, that's the Cultural Heritage Overview Assessment. And, and some of the funding it received, it was able to get, uh, 
very, very limited review of the application from an environmental consultant very early on. But none of, none of the funding from Kinder Morgan uh, was directed towards its actual participation in this proceeding. For this proceeding, Kwantlen received $40,000 from the federal government. Now, in other contexts, uh, that might enable meaningful consultation. But in the context of this proceeding and this project, it is a sad joke. It really is a sad joke. It is so inadequate. It almost need not be said how inadequate it is, but I'm not willing to take that risk, so I'm going to give you some context. And before I do that, I want to say that in this quasi-judicial adversarial proceeding, with written and indeed sworn evidence, and final written submissions, and formal motions, and legal argument, and reams of technical studies, it is fantasy to think that interveners can meaningfully participate without professional expertise. And of course, expertise costs money. So let's just take reading the application for a moment, the, the very start of this whole process. Well, that application spanned 15,000 pages of highly technical material. It's not even possible for me as Kwantlen's legal counsel to read the application for the amount of funding Kwantlen received. Not even read it. At a low rate of $300 an hour, say. There's a low rate for a lawyer, that, uh, sad state of affairs, but that's true. I would have to read 110 pages of technical material every hour for 133 hours. And that's just to read the application. But of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the material. I don't know how many pages have been put on the record, but with Northern Gateway, when the federal government made its decision, it said that it had reviewed 175,000 comparable proceedings. And of course, in order to participate, Kwantlen doesn't just have to read the material, it needs to bring motions and make information requests and give evidence and write submissions and deliver them orally. And all of that takes time, and time for which there is no funding. Take the information request, for instance. We decided we couldn't do the second round because to ask information requests, you have to be able to spend time pouring through the application, which we couldn't afford. And in any event, in the first round, Kinder Morgan would say, in response to our information request, we'll go see the answer that we gave to someone else. And then we go over there to see that answer, and it's, it is vague, or it is a non-response. And, 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 and to ask the second information request in a way that would be at all meaningful, you not only have to know the application, you also have to know what was asked and answered in the first round. And so even if information requests were an effective process, which they are not, we simply couldn't afford to use them. Not the second round, anyway. And we also couldn't afford to retain environmental consultants to advise us and to give us expert evidence. Given the enormous funding restraints, we had to focus our efforts on putting in evidence of Kotlin's rights and title and completely forego a technical assessment. We're unable to do any 
to, to do an assessment of the impacts on continents, rights, and title from an expert technical assessment uh, perspective at all. We couldn't commission a technical assessment of the impacts on the Salmon River, for instance. So their aboriginal title lands. Some, some, of, some of the few that are in Crown hands. We couldn't uh, assess the extent of the oil to McMillan Island if there's a spillage of the river uh, uh, up from them. The impacts of those constitu constitutionally protected interests have just not been assessed from a technical standard. And those are just two specific examples. But as a, as a broad statement, Kwantlen has not had the kind of technical expertise that it would allow it to tell you from that perspective and for you to assess what the impacts on their rights and title will be. Yeah, so the forceful submission, and he goes on and it, it keeps getting better and better until there's like applause, which you don't hear in court very often. Um, but what I think is so powerful about that is you see the barriers that are put up to participation in this type of a process. I think there was a question last class about funding for this type of a thing. Uh, and you see how you can't really assess the adequacy of a number like $40,000 without thinking through what it does or doesn't allow a nation to do. And what is um, you know, sort of striking about this submission from, from Tim is it doesn't get dealt with really at all in the panel report. Just kind of ignore it. This issue does get raised in the judicial review in a section I didn't highlight and have you read. It's within the consultation context, but it resonates in the procedural fairness, I think, as well. So this is really more of an administrative law question in some ways than a pure consultation question. And the Federal Court of Appeal says, well, we have heard from some nations that they've been unhappy with the amount of funding that's been provided to them. They note that Squamish asked for about 250000 and got the 40000 that Kwantlen got. They note that another nation, I think Stolo perhaps, uh, had an issue with the amount of funding given and uh, similarly got about $40,000. So then they dismiss this concern at paragraph 538 by saying, I accept the level of participant funding provided constrained participation in the process before the National Energy Board. However, as Canada submits, it's difficult to see the level of participant funding as being problematic in a systemic fashion when only two applicants address this issue. So they say, well, a lot of nations were there and only two of you are complaining about funding. Well, what's the problem with that? Uh, Quantland clearly complained about the funding why do you think Quantlin didn't participate in the judicial review? Funding, like, right? It's, so they didn't have the money to go complain about not having the money, so you're saying that not enough people complain about having money, so the money's fine. <laughs> it's sort of mind-boggling. They conclude ultimately that the Evidence has not demonstrated the level of funding was so inadequate as to render the entire consultation process unreasonable. 
So it's on the nations to demonstrate the funding is so inadequate that the whole process is unreasonable. And I think this illustrates in maybe a more visceral way that problem that nations face when they go to court to say that funding they're getting from the government is inadequate. Where you see this sort of a very coherent presentation being made that makes it very specific and understandable as to the problems. And yet, a funding question can be brushed aside by the court so very offhandedly because it's just not the type of issue that the courts often grapple with. So I didn't quite get through this case today, which I sort of thought I wasn't going to when my notes stretched on like page 12. But um, I think it's important to go through this with some care. And so I'm not, you know, not disappointed. We will finish up um, you know, the brief sort of consideration of the substantive challenges that were made. And I'll explain to you why they did succeed on this marine shipping point but how it ended up being a somewhat hollow victory for the opponents because uh, the decision was made again after further consideration and was upheld that time. But I want to sort of bring this back into our thinking about the three issues that we saw in the chapter. The first being the problems with administrative laws being a uh, mediator between the Crown and Indigenous groups. Uh, and specifically in relation to funding issues. And I think we see that resonating here in Tim's submission. The second being the, um, these administrative processes being a locus for grappling with Section 35 protected rights. And I think we see not only in um, you know, the way the duty to consult was dealt with in this case, which I didn't have you read in totality because um, this is an Aboriginal law case, and a course, and that's getting a bit afield from the admin law in particular. But we saw, I think, with Chief Ian Campbell and Squamish, how just the processes don't jive necessarily with Indigenous law and practice. And so I think this case nicely illustrates sort of two of the major concerns drawn from the chapter. The third concern, supervision of self-governance through the court system. We will also touch on on Wednesday next when we look at the, um, the Blueberry River case. So for next Wednesday, no new reading, but if you didn't get to that Blueberry River case, have a look at that. It's relatively short, uh, 18 pages, like that. And then for Friday, we'll, we'll have that last chapter. Uh, we should be finished with the new material by Friday. And then by next Friday, I also will have a practice exam for you to have a look at for the following Wednesday um, when we do our review. So thank you very much. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week.